Hello, everyone, and welcome to Keith Crosby Out of My Mind. This is podcast 024, podcast 24, about identity and sexuality. It's sacred. And in today's podcast, we're going to have a biblical conversation about the crazy world in which we live. And today's topic is about the transgender epidemic or the transgender fad. So join us over the next 20 minutes or so as we provide you a bird's eye view perspective of this complex issue confronting our culture, our church, our children, and us as we apply God's word to make sense of it all. At the end of the podcast, we'll point you to additional resources, and you do want to see the resource page on this one. So we'll point you to additional resources in case you're interested in further study to dig a little bit deeper. In the meantime, let's get started. All right, Keith. So last week we opened the discussion on sexuality, and uh, as you put it towards the end there, we pretty much just jumped in uh, feet first into the whole discussion of uh, sexual identity and transgenderism and all of those things. Uh, so, so why jump in there? Well, we jumped into the deep end, Mark, because that's what's in the news right now. Uh, the present and incoming administration is one of the most transgender-friendly political administrations in the history of the world. And so they're in the news for all the things that they're doing with women's sports and threatening tax-exempt statuses of religious institutions. And so that, for me, was the place for us to jump in and to engage this topic. Because it's in the news, and it's almost becoming a fad, almost an epidemic, and so it was a good place to start. It's interesting that you use the word uh, fad there, because for me, I think of a fad as something that's um, passing, you know, like bell-bottom pants or uh, the hair in the 80s and things like that. But uh, I'm not so sure that this one seems like it's necessarily a passing fad. Well, I hope it is. But what I mean by that is it's caught the culture. It's caught on in the culture. It's, uh, it's not something that is scientifically proven, but we like to say, well, the science has spoken when the science hasn't. And so it's a fad. It's something that's fashionable. It's something that many people find appealing, and it's almost an epidemic. Historically, those with gender dysphoria or what they call uh, gender identity disorder, transgender, amounted to about 1 in 100,000 females who felt uncomfortable with their sex and about 1 in 30,000 males. That was the smallest of minorities. According to research, it was mostly a condition that presented itself in males who felt more comfortable or identified with females. But today, there's almost an epidemic among young girls, uh, young teenage girls, who now identify as trans. You might have three to five or even more in a single school sometimes in a classroom or a Facebook group, and when you might have had three to five in a state or a city before that in some large metropolitan area. Now, sadly, it's unpopular to ask why the increase. We're supposed to ignore it and act like it's normal, that it's always been that way, and speaking about it can get you canceled or cyber-mobbed, or if you're a school teacher or a healthcare professional, questioning such diagnoses or self-diagnoses, you fired. Okay, so something that you said there was just seemed a little bit weird to me because you said originally the rate uh, will take the the girls for example, so so girls that felt like boys, the rate that that was was one in one thousand. No, that's know, one in one hundred thousand. One in one hundred thousand, correct. And now it's as big as three to five girls in a Facebook group or a school. Schools are like five hundred students, maybe a thousand. Big high schools are twenty five hundred. That's that's a pretty big jump in, in girls who are 
claiming to be transgender. How how do you think that's possible? Do you think that it maybe has something more to do with the fact that we're more open to transgenderism today than we were in the past? Well, that's why I call it an epidemic, because I don't think it's because more people are coming out now and it's more acceptable. As the research indicates, if that were the case, then people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, this would be their time to come out where they once suppressed acknowledging that, but that's not happening. And so it's wishful thinking to say, well, this is happening because uh, it's more acceptable today. I think there's a larger problem. So where do you think it's coming from then, this this shift in uh, in girls, especially, especially with young girls, but just in general with more and more people coming out as trans now? Well, and I appreciate you pointing out the girl factor because it has been primarily a disorder associated with young boys. But now girls are overwhelmingly presenting as transgender. And where is it coming from? It's coming from the culture, from popular culture. It's coming from the media. And among the bigger proponents are educators and counselors in the public school system. And since we live in California, let's start here. In June of 2019, the policymaking arm of the California Teachers Association, CTA, voted on a new measure to support a proposal to allow trans-identified minor students, underage students, leave campus during school hours to obtain gender hormone treatments without parental consent. Now think about that. And then not even a year later, in January of 2020, the CTA Civil Rights and Education Subcommittee voted to create school-based health care clinics that would provide cisgender, transgender, and non-binary youth equal and confidential access to a broad range of physical, mental, and behavioral service. And this included affording minors in California's public schools to take hormones that would help them transition without parental consent, without parental knowledge, without permission. And that would include even leaving school to go get these drugs, these hormones. Now let that sink in for a minute, because what you've seen here is education has become indoctrination. They've moved from teaching to indoctrinating, and, and they've moved to like having health care clinics. And the argument is, well, we provide free birth control pills without a parental consent, and that's a hormone, so why can't we give young girls testosterone? Now add to this that, that California has extensive and statewide gender identity training and sexual orientation instruction that is mandatory with no parental opt-out option. What you see here is a willful, determined indoctrination. And with one of the leaders explaining that parental rights end at the door of the public school, one of the uh, uh, bigwigs in the uh, teachers' union said this, that basically once those kids enter our building, they're ours, not yours. Now that's quite an idea. That's quite a radical idea. So you're basically kind of saying that this uh, indoctrination is pretty much the reason for this increased diagnosis. Pretty much. What we have is an overemphasis on a condition that affected the smallest of minorities. And it's this overemphasis, this uh, indoctrination injects ideas into impressionable young people, some of which who are in awkward years, you know, from adolescence to teen, puberty, things like that. And the training that they receive challenges them to explore what they might or might not be. There's a curriculum that talks about where do you fit in on the gender spectrum? Well, there is no gender spectrum. But they ask the question, where do you fit in on the gender spectrum? And how do you know? And are you certain? But remember this, gametes, uh, chromosomes are either male or female. There are none in between. 
and the gender spectrum is made up. But it goes beyond questions like these. Let's talk about kindergarten to sixth grade and the training that they receive and the indoctrination that they're subjected to. There are these activities for kindergartners through sixth graders. They emphasize gender sex stereotypes and saying this is what boys do, this is what girls do, and if a boy likes something that a girl likes, like painting or dancing, maybe that boy is really a girl trapped in a boy's body. Or maybe that girl is really a a boy trapped in a girl's body. And they suggest they might consider whether they're really another gender. Now, then there are their reading lists that the teachers are supposed to read to the students. There's a book called, Who Are You? The Kid's Guide to Gender Identity. The book starts with origin stories like this one, Babies Can't Talk. So grown-ups make a guess by looking at their bodies. This is the sex assigned to you at birth, male or female. This book also talks about different genders for kindergartners. The book Who Are You? offers a wide range of gender options. Here's a quote. These are just a few words people use. Trans, genderqueer, non-binary, genderfluid, transgender, gender neutral, agender, neutois, bigender, or yeah, bigender, third gender, two-spirit. Is this something you want your five-year-old, much less a sixth grader reading? Can you imagine reading this to children? And this kind of indoctrination begins in kindergarten in the public school system and runs through high school. Now fast forward and imagine an adolescent struggling with changes to his or her body, being uncomfortable with who they are, and being told, well, maybe you'd be happier if you were another gender. Maybe you're a girl or a boy trapped in a girl or a boy's body. Maybe you feel different because you really are a boy when you thought or your parents told you you were a girl. And there are cases, too many cases, where an impressionable young girl is reintroduced to her class with a boy's name and a boy's identity without telling the parents, and the school counselor is only happy to affirm this rebirth. They are supplied with affirmation by classmates. Now they feel cool, accepted, and affirmed. Next, the educational establishment points them to trans influencers on YouTube, and they learn the secrets of re-identification. Okay, this all seems pretty wild. My daughter was just in kindergarten, and uh, she, I guess thankfully, uh, did not have to read a book about her gender identity. And it just seems like this is pretty far out there. Well, these are documented cases, and she may not be reading the book, but the book may be read to her or stories told to her or questions asked of her. And you can just imagine a young person who is socially awkward trying to find acceptance, trying to fit in, and being welcomed in this way because they cheer them on. Imagine a young girl. She would have probably been anorexic 10 years ago or bulimic, but now she's presented with this option. And in California, and not just California, the child, the young person, can self-diagnose. And if the teachers' unions and activists have their way... They begin taking puberty blockers, or a girl might take testosterone, which majorly affects the body and the health, and that testosterone can also affect the cardiac health. So you said self-diagnose. Uh, doesn't this, isn't this something, especially if you're going to be getting you know, testosterone or puberty blockers or things like that, shouldn't that really need like a medical diagnosis more so than a, just a young child or a teenager um, kind of saying, I feel like the other gender. Well, it should be that way. But nowadays, they don't need a medical diagnosis. Under California law, whatever they say they are, they are. 
and they have to give it, be given access to showers, facilities, sports teams, or whatever. And uh, uh, there is less and less a tendency toward medical or psychological diagnosis. Uh, that's the way it used to be. It used to be a more empirical approach, a more objective approach, but that's in the past. You see, there were these uh, diagnostic and statistical manuals of the American Psychiatric Association, and they were and are, for lack of a better term, the Bible for diagnosing mental disorders, personality disorders, and things like that. And while some of their criteria was a little too subjective, they did, however, offer criteria, much of which today is, is ignored. In the past, medical professionals, mental health care professionals, believed that they needed to look at the whole person, the whole kid, not just recent feelings or influences, but not so anymore. In fact, to question a child about the details of their desire behind their gender choice is considered a form of bigotry, transphobic. But the hard science suggests that 88% of children outgrow their gender dysphoria unless socialized by an outside force like a school counselor, a class, a teacher, or acceptance or affirmation. So if 88% of the children outgrew their uh, gender dysphoria, which is medical diagnosis, uh, I'm assuming for transgenders, um, then what changed these people in the past? Like, Why, why is it that 88% of the children outgrew it then? What was the big difference there? What made them snap out of it? Yeah. Puberty. Shared experiences with peers who were going through the same thing. That's what did it. Okay, so don't kids still go through puberty now? Of course they do. But times have changed, Mark. Think social media. Here's an interesting phenomenon. Young people are, are less sexually active today than at any time in the past two decades. Well, isn't that a good thing? Well, it is, except for the reason. You see, these same kids are no longer getting driver's licenses. They don't interact on a personal level with their peers anymore. Interaction, approval, socialization doesn't come by hanging out with friends and talking. It comes from texting, Instagram, Facebook, social media. And so they tend to be stunted and socially and emotionally awkward. They're losing social skills. They're losing real human contact, relatable skills, and they're losing learning opportunities about life. And they can't talk with their peers like they used to could. And a text isn't like a conversation. COVID has only made things worse. And then they're exposed to this indoctrination. They come to a school and they soak this stuff up like a sponge. They are awkward in social settings. They are uncomfortable with their sexual maturation and ultimately some seek alternative identities. When they're uncomfortable with their bodies and a young lady may be developing breast or whatever and she's self-conscious and then as she expresses her discomfort to a teacher, the teacher affirms, well, maybe, maybe, maybe that's not a bad thing. You're being uncomfortable. Maybe you're a boy and they point them down this path and they receive affirmation and applause from classmates, likes on social media, and they make the jump to a new, less sexually obvious identity. And they can control the process. They can take puberty blockers. They can take testosterone. They can put on binders to flatten out their chest. And then there are trans YouTube influencers who teach them how to lie to parents, to create new social media identities that their parents can't see, to find new circles of friends, create pasts. There's one young, young person who tells you how to lie to your therapist so that you can read into your past all the requirements to rationalize and justify 
a transgender diagnosis. And you know, altering your body with these hormones or even the binders that flatten their breasts jeopardize their health. They damage lymphatic systems, uh, veins, they crack ribs. It's terrible. Really, it seems like a lot of these, um, you know, new criteria for what makes you transgender, you know, you described uh, the the teenager who's going through puberty and their body's changing and they talk with their teacher and express, you know, I just feel really awkward. And, and the teacher affirms that by saying, oh, well, maybe it's because you're supposed to be a boy. That seems pretty subjective to me. And so I would think that probably in the past, the, the there was a more objective criteria. There was. That's where I referred to the DSM-4. That's the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, fourth text revision, and now the fifth text revision is out, DSM-5. They used to call it gender identity disorder. Now they call it uh, gender dysphoria, and there's a movement to drop it altogether. But here's, here are the criteria, and they are somewhat subjective, but they're far more objective than what we're seeing today in the classroom and in the popular culture. But here's the thing. These criterion require an extended pattern of behavior, an extended period of time. And, and so if somebody just suddenly, because they're going through puberty, is uncomfortable with their sexual anatomy, that doesn't qualify. And so what we're seeing right now is people with no history of gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder, as they come into new social settings, feel awkward. And the solution is to kind of change their identity. I used the analogy uh, last week, like move to another town. And this strong desire that suddenly comes on them is not what matches the diagnostic criteria of the American Psychiatric Association. And we just see things completely and repeatedly redefined. Let me read to you the, the, same, the description of the same disorder from Wikipedia. Notice the difference. Gender dysphoria is the distress a person feels due to a mismatch between their gender identity and their sex assigned at birth. Now, did you catch this? due to a mismatch between their gender identity and their sex assigned at birth. That's a simple, so you don't like the sex assigned at birth? Well, then you switch. This is, this is just too subjective. It's too wishy-washy. You know, even today in the school system, when they talk about cisgender, you know, and agender and uh, transgender and non-gender, the unfortunate gender is heterosexual behavior. It's increasingly frowned upon. It's described as unfortunate or oppressive in schools and society. What do you expect children to do under this kind of pressure? Suddenly, with no history of gender dysphoria, a young man or a young woman uh, feels different now. They feel awkward. Their counselor tells them, well, maybe you're the other sex, and they undergo hormone therapy. And some girls, when they turn 18, get what they call top surgery or breast amputation. The weird thing about all this, the odd thing about all this, is that many of the young women who are in part of this epidemic, they, they, they have the top surgery, they call it, or they wear binders to flatten their chest. They take male hormones but they never finish the process because they just want to be in between, almost non-gendered. And the non-gendered thing is becoming a new fad, as is the myth of gender fluidity. Now, with the help of school counselors and others in the educational establishment, children are indoctrinated and move quickly into life-altering, permanent, irreversible decisions that do irreversible damage. But generally speaking, in the past, physicians who perform sex reassignment surgery or any of these kind of surgeries, they used to require the patient to live as their new target gender for at least a year. 
they required a period of what they called cross-living or real-life testing or real-life experience even before beginning hormonal therapy. That is not the case today. Okay, so I've noticed that there's been uh, quite a bit of emphasis put on, you know, the roles that the educational establishment plays in this. Do you feel that the whole educational establishment is on board with this? Are you saying essentially all teachers and counselors are complicit to this? No, Mark, I'm not saying that at all. But many good teachers, good educators, real professionals are getting out or being forced out. You see, now as an educator in the public school establishment, particularly with the power that the teacher unions wield and their political agenda, their moral agenda, you can't remain neutral and because these extremists won't allow it. And so either you have to become an activist, an activist for the critical theory or critical justice movement, which of all this is a part, or you wind up on administrative leave and fired because you can't serve two masters. You'll love one or hate the other. And this is where the Christian teacher is going to have to choose. You know, teachers and counselors have some tough ethical choices to make, particularly Christians working and teaching in public schools. And now you have a Congress in favor, a Senate in favor, or evenly split, and a president and vice president of the United States who support the most radical aspects of this agenda. Wow, this all seems pretty overwhelming, uh, almost hopeless. Like, I, I think of my daughters, and it's like, you know, part of me wants to say, I just don't, I, they don't have a chance uh, in this. So uh, maybe let's let's turn the corner a little bit and talk about where the actual hope is. In Well, th- there's an old saying, and, and this is a secular saying, knowledge is power. And I, my hope is, is that many and much more parents will become aware of this, will equip themselves, will become active, and will push back because the alternative is to subject your young person from kindergarten through 12th grade to a, an indoctrination that eats up most of their lifetime, and they cannot come away unscathed. Now, ultimately, our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope comes from God. Hope is found in Christ. But for Christian parents, they've got to be actively involved in their child's education. They cannot be passive. If possible, awareness of these challenges should prompt some who can afford it to leave the public school system because there is no reforming it. The unions are too powerful. The government is too powerful. And in a manner of speaking, the die is cast. But not everybody can afford a Christian private school. And I say a Christian private school because let me tell you, secular private schools are right in there with this critical theory indoctrination, with this transgender LGBTQ indoctrination, this radical, radical ideology. Now, mercifully, there are many Christian private schools that offer financial aid or scholarships or partial scholarships, and that's true nationally as well as in California and here in San Jose. KFAX, our radio station, offers a 50% discount on tuitions to numerous private Christian schools within the area. There's also the homeschool option, which admittedly isn't for everybody, but right now, if you think about it, COVID-19 has forced most parents into some form of this option. Then there are charter schools, but again, the National Education Association is pushing the president to really, and the Department of Education to crack down on charter schools, and so that's, that's going to be increasingly a problem. As I said before, every parent is a homeschooler at some level, and you have to choose to lay and establish a right foundation. Otherwise, these, these predators, I mean, the people who are preying on our children with this ideology are predators, and we cannot afford 
to be passive because our silence is consent. You've got to ask your children about what they're learning. You've got to actively teach and indoctrinate your children towards Christ because the damage being done is permanent, physical, emotional, in some cases, eternal damage. And I'm not wanting to seem cruel or mean-spirited, but the truth is you can't even have a civil conversation about this without being labeled as a bigot or a transphobe or something like that. This ideology and this wide-scale indoctrination is at all levels of our society, and there's no reasoning with these ideologues. So as a Christian, I'm committed to God's way. I'm committed to Christ, and he can forgive any sin. He can heal any hurt. He can fix any broken heart. He can help you guide your children through this process of getting them out of this mindset. Ultimately, the hope is in the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in Christian parents who wish to parent and educate their children God's way and not see their children maimed or injured by the culture or the educational establishment. That's uh, that's some great advice, I think, for um, parents, especially young parents uh, like myself. Um, but what if someone is is already bought into this lie and they're they're already down this journey? Maybe their child has already kind of taken steps transition transition genders. Um, what what do you tell them? There are some great resources available. I want to recommend a book by Abigail Schreier called Irreversible Damage. It will give you some resources. The book was banned by Target and Amazon tried to suppress it, but I got my copy through Barnes & Noble, but you can now get it on Amazon as well. It's a great book for creating an awareness of what you can do. Uh, there is also a video on YouTube called Transformed, T-R-A-N-Z-F-O-R-M-E-D. It is a Christian video with testimonies by people who came out of the transgendered movement lifestyle, some regrettably after they'd had surgery. But no matter where you are in this process, there's hope. You know, here's some other, Joe Rogan, he's kind of a foul kind of guy, comedian. He's probably one of the, one of the largest podcasters. He's done some amazing uh, interviews of Sandra So, of Abigail Schreier, uh, the Rubin Report. These are all on YouTube. Just Google them. They'll give you insight and hope. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to what we as parents, what we as pastors, how we edify, how we equip our young people. And that is the hope. The hope is in Christ and his word. Well, you know, Mark, I think that's it for today. Everybody really take a look at our resource page this time because it's going to be loaded. In the meantime, that's it for today. If, if you'd like further resources, visit us online at www.gracetoliveradio.org and click the podcast resource button. If you'd like to ask me a question, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email, keith at hillside.org. I try to answer within 24 hours. You can learn more about Hillside Church at www.hillside.org forward slash services if you want to watch our worship services online or attend them in person. Before we go, if you're listening to Google Podcast or Apple Podcast or Spotify or iTunes Music, give us a give us a good rating. Share us with your friends. These are issues that confront everyone today and everyone. We want to help people. We release this podcast on Wednesdays, so we hope you'll join us next time. This is Keith Crosby with Mark Stickler, Out of My Mind. God bless you and God keep you.